This afternoon, we'll be looking at Lord's Day 36, continuing our journey through the Ten Commandments. While the first commandment we dealt with spoke about not having any other gods before him, second commandment, having no images, this third commandment deals with the name of God. And in connection with that, we'll be reading from Romans 1, speaking about the name of God. The name of God and the name of Christ. Romans 1, and we'll be reading the verses 1 to 7. You'll be able to find that on page 1293 of your pew Bible. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his scriptures in the holy, through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So far, we'll be reading a summary of Scripture as we find it in the Heidelberg Catechism concerning the third commandment in Lord's Day 36. And you'll be able to find that on page 553 of your book of praise. What is required in the third commandment? We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence, so that we may rightly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing and cursing to grieve a sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly, for no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue our journey through the Ten Commandments, following the summary that we find in the Heidelberg Catechism, we have come to the discussion of the third commandment. Over the weeks prior to our sermon today, we've read about and spoken about what God says concerning who he is. The summary of the first commandment. We spoke about who we were in relation to God, as well as the sovereign and holy nature of God, and how there is no other God that is like him. Next, we looked at how we worship him. We don't come before him intending to manipulate him, nor do we try to fit him into a box of our own understanding. He's a limitless God, and so we worship him in a way that does not put limits on him, in a way that rather describes who he is and reflects on his character and describes his work as it was carried out through history. Each of these commandments dealt with the fundamental character of God. They tell us about who God is. 
Now, while we dealt with the question of what our relationship with God should be in part in these, this third commandment brings it to the fore, brings it to the fore in full. And the question of what our relationship to God should be. So, in light of the above two points, we'll deal with it in full today. Today, we come to the question of his name. Why should this be important to us? Because God's name is sacred. It's connected with who he is, and it impacts how he deals with us. And that's the point that we'll be examining as we're together today. We'll be discussing that under the theme, God's name is our salvation. And we'll see, first of all, it's a name to be defended. Second, a life to reflect it. And third, an excellence to be savored. What's in a name? It's an age-old question. In the case of some, there's not much to a name. It's something that can be easily discarded and a new one picked up as needed. You'll be able to find a certain reflection of this in the way that we can change our names fairly easily when we get married, for example. Certainly there's a lot of hoops to jump through, but you submit the right paperwork to the government and the government goes through it, they approve it. You submit the paperwork for your driver's license, for your insurance, for your health card, for all of that. But after you've done that, it's pretty straightforward. You can change your name. If you're willing to jump through the hoops, it's not too difficult. Reflecting on that, that might lead some of you kids to the question, all right, so what's the big deal about a name then? Why does it matter so much to God? Names are something that come and they go, don't they? I mean, my friend calls me this nickname in school and... My parents call me this, and other people call me that. What's the big deal about our name? We read in our passage, Romans 1, that through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Or as another translation puts it, that through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, to bring about the obedience of faith among all nations for the sake of his name. We look at that and we ask again, why does it matter for the sake of his name? What does his name have anything to do with it? Isn't a name something that you can just pick up and discard at will? If someone makes fun of your name, well, that's their problem. Ha ha, big deal. You're real mature. And you move on. Does it need to be defended more than that? Perhaps with man, this might be true. But when it comes to the name of God, we have a completely different, we need to take a completely different perspective on the matter. For God, his name is much more than simply a sign, a marker pointing to him. It's much more than just something by which to call him. For God, it's a part of who he is, and this is important to him. You can see this in passages like Leviticus 24, where he holds his name so dear 
that someone who blasphemes his name is put to death by stoning. The name that's mentioned in that passage in Leviticus 24 refers to God himself and therefore makes him fiercely protective of it. His whole being is wrapped up in it. And this means that when God does speak his name, he's speaking of something that goes far beyond simply the word that is used to describe him. It's at this point that many people stumble. They want to attach so much of an emphasis to God's name that they avoid using it altogether. You'll be able to find this among, for example, many of the Jews. When reading Hebrew scriptures, they won't use the name Yahweh. Because of the fact that they aren't 100% sure of how to pronounce it, they avoid it altogether in order that they don't offend God by using it. Instead, they'll use the name Hashem, which means the name. Instead of saying Yahweh, or as we have in many of our translations, Lord in capital letters, they'll say Hashem. Because of that, a passage like Psalm 127 would then read, unless Hashem builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Another alternative that they use is to read the name Adonai every time that they see the name for the Lord. Of course, they don't, didn't want to change this in the text of Scripture. So in the text of Scripture, they still had the name Yahweh in consonants marked down on the page. But they put the vowel pointings for the name Adonai or Lord on top of that so that they wouldn't have to use it. Unfortunately, it's come down, been passed down into our day in such a way that the people who read it and who were working with it early on, they ended up changing, uh, not understanding the full meaning behind why the Jews had put it that way. And then instead, they read the consonants and the vowels together, mashing it up into one word, saying, instead of Yahweh or Adonai, saying, Yahovah, Jehovah. Jehovah is actually a non-word. It's a mashup of two words. Such avoidance of the use of the name in order not to cause offense is not limited among the Jews either. You'll find that's something that's carried on through more people. For example, there are many Christians today who see the name God as something that should be protected. And so if they're writing a post online or something, they'll have the word God with G hyphen D there, just so that they don't have the full name there. It's their way of trying to show that they are not taking the name of the Lord in vain, but they're doing the opposite of it. But these various tactics that we take, changing the name of God, just saying the name instead, just saying Adonai instead, replacing one thing for another, is that really how we are called to defend the name of God? This is where we need to re-emphasize that God's name is not just an add-on. It's not just a sign 
It's not just what we call him, but it is who he is. Let me explain. In the Bible, when God gives a name, the meaning is at the forefront of his mind. Take, for example, Abraham. When God first approached Abraham, Abraham's name was Abram. God made a covenant with Abraham. And in order to signify the weight of this covenant, God took Abraham's name and he changed it. He gave him a new name, Abraham. And he followed that up. Abraham means the father of many or the father of a multitude. And he followed that up immediately by saying to Abraham, for you will be a father of many nations. Genesis 15 verse 7. A name in the Old Testament expresses character or history. Therefore, a change in character or history would mean a change in the name. And this was all the more true for God himself. When a new aspect of God's character is revealed, or when we get a new stage in redemptive history, then God shares a new name with his people. His name is meaningful because it represents who he is. God's name is him. Because of this, God's name ought to be fiercely defended by us. When someone disparages God's name, they are disparaging God. They are disparaging an attribute of him or an action of him. For his name is the revelation of his redeeming grace. His name is a revelation of another part of who he is. This leads us to our second point. In light of the significance of God's name, we are called to recognize the importance of God's name ourselves as well. But defending against taking the name of the Lord in vain means so much more than just intervening if someone is using it flippantly, if someone is blaspheming. The Catechism puts it in this way. We are not to blaspheme or abuse the name of God by cursing perjury or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God out of fear and reverence so that we may rightly confess him, call upon him, and praise him with all our words and works. In light of the significance of this, God God considers the abuse of his name as a terrible sin. We already get a picture of this in the Old Testament with the people of Israel in a more direct sense. When we hear the command that blasphemy must be punished with the ultimate punishment, death. But the third commandment embraces so much more to life than that. And a brief scan of the Old Testament demonstrates that. Sacrificing your children to the god Molech, for example, was profaning the name of the Lord. Leviticus 18 verse 21 If you were a priest who was carrying out his day-to-day duties, his sacrifices, and you started to cut corners just to get these people processed a little bit faster who are bringing in all of their animals, that was considered profaning the name of the Lord. Malachi 1 verse 6 and following. It was taking divine ceremonies lightly. If you touched holy things unlawfully, 
Things that God had declared to be set apart. You laid hands on them when you weren't supposed to. That was considered profaning the name of the Lord. Because you were taking God's holiness lightly. Putting detestable things in holy places. Jeremiah 7 verse 20. This was considered to be deliberately provoking God. And so it was considered profaning the name of the Lord. This was always to be enforced by the people of God who were to hold God's name in the highest regard and not let anyone profane it. But if human justice didn't catch up with them, we read in Deuteronomy 28, verse 58 to 59, that it will still catch up with them. There we read, If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. Why are all of these things considered insults against the name of the Lord? Why are they considered profaning his name or taking his name in vain? It wouldn't far beyond just speaking. Why was this tied in? The Lord considered His name, His great and glorious name, as something that was to be held dear. And to take His name lightly was a grave sin with serious consequences. Intentional disobedience, which was what they would be doing by the different examples that we mentioned before. Intentional disobedience was a reflection of deepest ingratitude for what he had done for them. He had taken them out of slavery in Egypt. He had redeemed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But if they responded in such deliberate disobedience, they were showing what they really thought about God. Disobedience in such a deliberate manner showed that they considered him as someone not worthy of reverence, of awe, of holy fear and wonder. And this brought consequences. Think for a moment, if you want to take a step back from the ancient Near Eastern world, think for a moment of your own children. If you have a child who has a very low opinion of his parents, you take him out into public and he'll humiliate you, and it won't be a one-time thing. He'll be deliberately and consistently disobedient to you. Maybe he'll call his dad by his first name deliberately to embarrass him in front of his colleagues. Or maybe he'll throw a screaming temper tantrum in the mall if he doesn't get, away, get his way, either to manipulate his mom into getting him what he wants or to punish her for not doing it his way. If these things do happen, if things do happen, they must happen on the timeline and on the schedule of that child. 
or else he's not planning on cooperating. In short, that child's disobedience is a reflection of what he or she thinks of their parents. Their parents, they'll obey them as long as it goes their way, but their whole world revolves around themselves. They consider their parents not worthy of reverence. And this bears consequences. That is why God connects obedience and the treatment of his person, his ceremonies, his holiness, his character, or any other aspect of his being to his name. He connects obedience and the treatment of all of that to his name. Because how you obey God reflects what you think of him. How you obey someone reflects what you think of them. If you're only obedient as long as it fits your timeline, your desires, and your convenience, then you're not really obedient at all, apart from to the kingdom of self, where you rule as king. We read of the seriousness of this in Hebrews 10, verse 26 to 29. Let's take a look at that for a moment together. Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 29. You'll be able to find that on page 1381 of your pew Bible. Hebrews 10, verse 26 to 29. For if we sin willfully, again, this willful idea, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of God? Of grace. Deliberate and willful sin reflects how you perceive the name of the Lord. But there is good news in this passage as well. How is there good news, you might ask? Didn't we just read all about judgment, about fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation? How is that good news? They just speak about judgment, don't they? Well, speak about judgment, they do. And there's no question about that. But it's in the way that they speak about judgment that we find our good news in this passage. It's a little word that we find in the Greek in Hebrews 10 verse 26 that we can focus on. Referring to sinning. Now it's difficult to capture the full extent of this word in English as you translate it. But the word for sin, which we find in connection with sinning willfully, implies that this is not a one-time thing. It's continual. It's deliberate. It's an entrenched pattern in which there is no repentance and no remorse. That is what has fiery judgment awaiting it. Still, you ask, how is that good news? This is good news Because it means that there is forgiveness. In Christ, there is not just forgiveness for words. 
but for all of the different ways, big and small, when we thought lightly of God. There is forgiveness for when we took His holiness lightly. There is forgiveness when we stood by and let someone disparage God's name without stepping up. There is even forgiveness for the times that we knew something was wrong and yet we did it anyways simply because we wanted to say, I did it my way. Because there's forgiveness in the blood. If you treat the blood of the covenant by which you were sanctified as a precious thing, there's forgiveness. If you treat it as something which you trampled underfoot, it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing when you're not turning to Christ every day in repentance for it. It's a fearful thing if you take the blood that was poured out for you lightly. But if you treasure it, if daily you lay aside your garments that were stained with sin, if you are clothed with Christ, there is forgiveness. And there is thanksgiving. And that reaches the heart of this commandment. Respect for the third commandment, as with all of the commandments, flows out of our thankfulness to God for his redeeming grace. We recognize the work that was done and that we don't earn anything by obeying this commandment. However, we also recognize that this commandment calls for defense of the name and reputation of our God. And so out of gratitude, we step up to defend. Because we know what he's done for us. But we don't do that in our own strength. That too we do in a strength that is supplied to us by the recognition of God's name. Because for those who do repent, God's name is their salvation. God's name is an excellence to be savored. For those who do repent and turn to God, God's name is an excellence to be savored. Because the same passion the same love, the same drive that God shows to defend his own name will then be turned in defense of them. That is the same regard and passion that he shows for us. Consider when God gave his name to the people in Exodus 3. I am who I am, he said. This is my name. He was declaring his constancy, his regard for them, his redeeming grace. He was declaring to them that he was the God on whom they could rely. Because he had sworn to Abraham, their forefather, by himself, on the basis of his name, he would be their God. And God continued in that way. His name has great value to him. And on the basis of his faithfulness to his name, he will be faithful to his people. They might reject him, 
They might fall away, but always he will preserve a remnant. He will do so on the basis of his promises, promises that are grounded in his name. We've seen this throughout the Old Testament. And it's most clearly evident in Ezekiel 36, 21 to 23. There, God is furiously angry with his people because of their sin. But he will not put an end to them, no matter how much they deserve it. Instead, he says, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. God rescued Israel for his name's sake. His fierce love for his name translated into a fierce love for his people. Despite what they had done. And not only will he return them to the land, he says in this chapter in Ezekiel 36. Not only will he return them to the land, but he says further on, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. What a remarkable thing. God will soften the hard hearts of his people. He will put his spirit in them and turn them back to him. He'll show them an undeserved, merciful love, all for the sake of his great name. And that promise isn't just limited to that people, in that time, at that place. Because God extended it far beyond the borders of Israel. God tells us in Romans 10, verse 10 and following, that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is over all The same Lord who is over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever relies on him, confessing that Jesus is Lord, has God already at work in them. Because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, we read. But we see even richer blessings poured out from here. The Lord has extended his name to all the nations. Free for anyone who will turn to him, be joined with him, take shelter under his wings. This isn't just something for a people long ago and far away. 
this shelter is extended to me and to you, to all who would call on the name of the Lord. What amazing grace this is. How sweet the sound of the name of the Lord our God is. Amen.